sellers are, I don't know if you want to call them liars, but sellers are always hiding some cards. So it's just conversations and being open. I think real estate's a people business. And the more you listen and ask them questions and, and just be upfront with people, the more you'll hear and understand. Isn't it just the best when a software comes out that makes your life easier, makes you more money, and by the way, it's free? Well, welcome to Stessa, today's best ever sponsor. Stessa is a smarter income and expense tracking software for property owners. It allows you to track, manage, and communicate the performance of your real estate asset. So basically, it helps you make more money by looking at your properties in one dashboard. It's a beautiful dashboard, by the way. And it shows you the KPIs, the key performance indicators that you care about. What's the value? How much cash flow are you getting? What's the debt that you have on the properties? What do you bring in a monthly? What are you bringing in annually? And it allows you to have a quick snapshot, not only of your properties, but also come tax time, it's a breeze because you can scan receipts and invoices directly from the phone app and Stessa will automatically read and categorize them for you. No more data entry. It's been talked about in Forbes, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and all it takes is just a few minutes to add your properties, link the accounts, and everything updates in real time. Without Stessa, I was looking at my portfolio on an infrequent basis. I'm talking about my single-family home portfolio. I got three single-family homes, and I didn't realize that I had trapped equity. But if I was looking at it from a dashboard that Stessa has, then I would have realized that, hey, I got a portfolio value of X and I've got debt on it of Y. Holy cow, look at all this trapped equity. I'm missing out. And with Stessa, that won't happen. So go to stessa.com forward slash best ever. And it's free. It's free. Stessa.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Michael Zuber. How you doing, Michael? Great, Joe. How are you? I am doing great and nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Michael. He is a buy and hold investor. He spent 15 years buying one rental at a time and He's now focused on helping other business professionals earn financial independence based in Mountain View, California. With that being said, Michael, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure will, Joe. So like everyone in Mountain View, California, seemingly that means I've worked in the technology industry for the last 20 or 25 years or so. And the reason really I'm on this podcast with you, Joe, is because 15 years ago, I realized that I wasn't the next Warren Buffett and stock market wasn't going to be my... Uh, way to financial freedom. And I just started buying one rental at a time, right? A, a little three bedroom, two bath, two car garage house in Fresno, California. And that one step led to a journey of 15 years, ultimately through multiple different cycles of the real estate world and exited this year, February 1st with a portfolio of 175 units and financial independence. And at the time I was 45 and when you're 45 and you still have a lot of vigor and, and you need to do something, I, I had a couple of great days when you can run around and tell everybody you retired and then you kind of wake up and go, well, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I was either going to go back and get a job or I was going to find something to throw myself into and I've decided to just try to help people understand that they can take the one rental at a time journey and move forward. So that's what I'm doing. I've been doing that all year, at least since February 1st and it's been fun. Did I hear that right? 175 units? 
Units, yes. So that's Unit, a mixture right. of, of houses up through several 18-unit apartment buildings. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. So the largest property is an 18-unit? Yes, three of those, correct. You have three of them, okay. Were they purchased in one transaction? No, they were not. Three different it, times. Just a coincidence that they're 18, each of the three? Yeah, just coincidence. I've never looked personally at anything over 30 units because I guess my mindset was wrong. And that was something I took away from your book. If we were actually on video, I'd flash everybody the book that I have of yours. It's all noted up and has dog ears in it and the like. But I need to think bigger, but we're talking about my history. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I never looked at anything bigger than 30 and I've only bought 18. How much income does 175 units spit off? We got to be careful, right? When we talk terms, are we talking gross rental income or net net cash flow, or what are we talking about? We'll go both. So we produce about one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars a month in gross rents, depending on whether or not we've done refinancing or the like. We cash flow net north of twenty grand a month every month for quite a while now. So, and one hundred and seventy-five units over fifteen years, mm-hmm. with the largest being three eighteen. So I imagine most are, what, one unit or single family home or what? Uh, I would say the majority of our houses are what you would call in our world commercial. So they're five units and above. Okay. Well over 100 units are made up of that configuration, right? Five units and above up through 18. I mean, 18 times three is 54 by itself. So that's a third. Then we have a couple of 13s, some 10s, some fives, some eights, a seven. So We bought those, most of those via 1031 exchange money coming out of the seller's market of sort of 2003 through 2008. So looking back, we look like geniuses. We just couldn't buy anything. So we sold all these houses at ridiculous prices and moved into apartment buildings because it was the only thing that made sense. Who's we? My wife and I, sorry. Okay. And how do you two divvy up responsibilities? In the beginning, first decade or so, my job was to find deals and secure capital. And she did the books, if you will as well as took care of the daily communications with property managers. The other thing that should be known for your audience is we've had a property manager since day one. It was always part of our calculation, our cost metrics and things of that nature because Fresno for us is two and a half hours away one way. So we could never do that, or at least we never thought we could. And then again, I traveled 100 days a year. I did 200,000 miles on an airplane. I just couldn't have another job. And, and property manager, it's a job. And frankly, it's it's really hard job to do it well. Yes, So I think you said initially that's what you all did. Has that evolved up to now? Yeah. So now we're both retired. The portfolio is not nearly as active as it used to be. We've now gone through what I call the passive investing. We've gone through the acquisition. We've gone through the sort of cleanup and seasoning and juggling the portfolio to make it where it is. And and now a lot of it is mailbox money. We've worked with a property management team after going through several for a decade now. And the time commitments from the wife is much less, basically once a month review of the reports. And then what I'm doing now is I'm still in the game looking for deals and the like, but it's certainly a lot less active than I used to be. We're kind of enjoying things right now. Approximately how many acquisitions have you done? That's a good question. I would say we have done probably north of 80, less than 100, probably somewhere in there. All right. And where is the equity coming from or where did it come from in order to acquire the 100 transactions? Now you got 175 units. That's a good question. So you got to stretch this out over a 15-year period. So obviously in the beginning, we started like most investors do. We started with just personal savings. Our personal savings was not impressive, but admittedly, maybe it was more than some, but less than others. It was a whopping $40,000. That's what we had to begin with. 
what we did, because again, remember when we started in 03, as you might remember, that was a huge seller's market and, and prices went up. So we took advantage of several cash out refis. Our first purchase was done with the standard 80% first, and we brought in 20%. That particular property I talk about a bunch is 1818 Norris Drive. You can look it up on Zillow. We bought for 107. We refied it after a couple of years and pulled out 30 or 35 grand, bought something else. And then ultimately 1031 that when we sold it for 265 or 267 or whatever it is and moved that money into a five unit building. So we did a, a bunch of cash out refis. We never had a windfall of money. Never like my company got bought or anything of that nature. We just started and kept active and used lending when appropriate. And in 18 months, we did eight 1031 exchanges and we went from roughly eight to 80 units with no new capital, right? We just took the equity as the down payment. Then during the crash, we had been saving for a while. So we had some capital, probably 50 or 60K, but we found a way to use private money because nobody was lending during that time. Who'd you go to? Not looking for names, but sure. what was your relationship with the private money person and what were the terms? Yeah. So friends and family, as you might suspect, lots of coworkers and the like had seen what I've been doing, right? That's the beauty when you talk to people. And at this point, they'd seen what we've been doing for 10 years and had seen us grow from eight to 80 just to sort of keep the story straight. So they knew what we were doing and they were like, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in a savings account earning less than 1%. I'd like to do something with you because at the time we were buying properties for land value. So it was very easy to give great security. So we actually paid 10% interest only. So we would buy a property, just use rough math for $50,000. That was trashed, right? The early REOs at that time seemed to be trashed or vacant. We would buy it with our money, cut the check for 50 grand, go through escrow, all of that. We would then go back to a private investor and sort of refill our coffers with that $50,000. They would then get a deed and a note paying them 10% interest. And then we would repair it, lease it, and hold that for a long time until we wanted to refi it years later and lower the interest rate substantially. How much of the appreciation was from the 8 to 80 units when you did the 1031 exchanges? Was forced appreciation through a business plan versus congrats, you won the lottery because you're in the right area in California. I wish I had a better story. We were in the number one market. If you go back and look at Fresno and I think it was 2004 and five was the number one appreciating market. We got lucky. It wasn't a business plan. The only business plan we had is we were never going to buy what I call an alligator or a negative cash flow property. That was intentional. It's yeah. frankly what saved us in 07 and 08. We would not do an egg am or a two and 28 teaser loan because it just didn't fit our model. So that saved us, but that was the only business plan was never having a, a negative cash flow property and, and then being wise to take the chips off the table via 1031 exchange when the so time when, is right. When you talk to people about financial independence, how do you talk to them about replicating your model given what you just said? So really what I see is the most beneficial is you've got to get people to start. So if they want to talk about this story, I'm happy to share it. It is what it is, right? I have that history to talk about it. But what I spend most of my time doing is trying to get people just to think about getting to four. Think about how your life would be better just if you spent the next four years buying one rental at a time for the next four years. Why four? Because it's easy to finance four. You can go to Wells Fargo, Bank of America, wherever you want. It's relatively easy for most individuals to get at least a single rental property. And I think if I can do that, if I can get them just to think about four, I'm going to help lots of people. And then for the few that want to get past four, we can talk about getting to 10 because that's also possible. And then after that, you're sort of in the game, you've got the DNA, you've, you figure out if this is something for you or not. I'm not here trying to sell some vision that you too can go from one house to 175 units. I'm not selling anything. So I'm just telling stories. 
What type of financing did you put in place on the properties after your first four units? The first one was Wells Fargo, just standard 80-20 loan, 80% first and 20% owner's equity. Then we started just going through Countrywide and they financed the first eight purchases. They did their 90% loan package, which was an 80% first, 10% second. We only had to bring in 10%, which allowed us to do a lot of purchases. There were no limits. Getting financing back then was literally easier than fogging a mirror. That's how we started. And you said you didn't buy any negative cash flowing properties. What's a property that didn't turn out as pleasantly as you projected? That first one, it had a sour taste a couple of different <laughs> times. Okay. So first, our story begins, we live in Mountain View and all the real estate books we read talked about buying in your backyard. You've read those books too, right? Be 30 sure. minutes from home and you know all that stuff. Well, the Bay Area has never made sense. It doesn't make sense now. It didn't make sense 15 years ago. So we were kind of stuck. Then the wife sort of gets kudos for saying, well, why don't we look elsewhere? So we spend quite a bit of time and we finally end up in Fresno. We finally find that property for 170 grand that rents for 1095 and we're ecstatic. We buy it, we're ecstatic. It rents in a week, we're ecstatic. Then lo and behold, two weeks after the tenants move in, they separate. The wife takes off, moves out of state. The husband decides to drink nonstop and refuses to pay rent decides to destroy the property to take his anger out on our rental. And in California, it takes a while, unlike some states, to get people out. So we took almost 90 days to remove this individual. And again, keep in mind, this is our first rental, right? After a year of, of we're going to be landlords, we're going to take over the world. And this could have really killed us and stopped our momentum. And lo and behold, it's been six months and we've gotten that first month's rent plus the deposit. And then we had an eviction. It cost about $1,000. And, and then we had about a $15,000 remake once that individual was out. So that hurt. I think about that a lot because that could have stopped us, but we kept going and it was because Olivia and I were on the same page and, and we just wanted to move on to the next one. We just didn't see a better way. We weren't going to invent anything. We're not athletes. We're not singers. It was the only thing that made sense to us, I guess. When you're talking to people and you're telling your stories, what are some typical questions that they ask you? Give me a deal. I can't tell you. <laughs> Give me a deal that you don't want, right? I right. That all the time. Yep. Like, no, no, you know, deals are created. They're not found. What's um, an example of when you created a deal and didn't just find it? I can talk about what I just did this year. So there was a fourplex that an owner wanted to sell. They've actually owned it for, I think it was 28 years. So basically it's been fully depreciated. So their cost basis is zero. They are now of age where they are far more interested in stable income versus just being a landlord and travel. It's what they want to do. So a friend of mine, again, in the Fresno area, heard this individual talk about maybe wanting to owner finance their fourplex, not really knowing what that meant. So a couple of phone calls later, I actually agreed to meet at the property. And what I found out through that conversation is what they wanted the building to produce. What they asked for was $2,000 a month mm-hmm. when the building was only rented for $3,200. I politely let them know that that would be an alligator and I explained what an alligator is and negative cash flow and all of that. So after some going back and forth, we agreed to a monthly payment of $1,700 and we agreed to a interest rate of 1%. So I'm paying off a bunch of principal and we amortized it over the 30 years and we have a 15 year balloon. So that's an example of something we've done. And why is it good for the seller? Because they don't have a big income tax hit because I did a low down payment of only 15 grand and then they get to balance their income for tax reasons. Mm-hmm. So we found a way that was good for them and good for us. And once it was all done, we were afraid they were going to have to cut a $100,000 tax bill. So we got around that. What was the agreed upon purchase price in 15 years? It was 232. 232. That seems low for Fresno. And maybe my view skewed for 
all California real estate and yep. I just I'm stereotyping it, but a four unit for two thirty two is that was that below market? It is below market. Yeah, I could probably sell it today, having done nothing other than raise rents a little for like three fifty. Yeah, so I could make I don't know after transactions eighty k or whatever. That's not what I do. We do have a prepayment penalty on there to discourage me from doing that. What is um, it? It's fifty grand for the first ten years. So if I sell it any time within the first ten years, I owe them a fifty thousand dollar prepayment penalty. Hmm. When they initially wanted two thousand, you said alligator, and you explained mm-hmm. it, and you ended up at seventeen hundred. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about the dialogue back and forth between you two, where you eventually agreed on seventeen hundred? Yeah, it was a phone conversation. I remember because I was out celebrating my birthday with the wife, and I just stepped out from dinner. And I said, okay, great. Thank you for the phone call. I understand you want $2,000 a month. I've looked at your property. It produces $3,200 a month. And unfortunately, I've been doing this a long time and I know that that building's not going to cash flow for me. Their response was, oh, sure it will. And I'm like, well, help me understand that because maybe I'm doing my math wrong. I said, do you pay property management? No, we do that ourselves. Well, I said, well, you know, understand that I live out of town and I'm not going to be able to do that. So my property manager is going to charge me, you know, pick a number. I think I said $200 to keep the numbers round. Yep. And I said, okay, great. Well, what about water and garbage? Oh yeah, of course we pay that. I said, well, I own a lot of property there and water's not cheap. And that's probably two and a quarter for a property like that. Well, ours is more like 180. I said, okay, fine. So it's 180, whatever it is. And we just kept rattling off costs, taxes and insurance. And the other one was taxes. So you bought the property for 18 grand in 1979 or whatever it is. And I'm like, well, I'm going to buy it for 232. So my property taxes are going to go up from you know $12 <laughs> a month to, I don't know, $180 a month. So we just kept rattling off the costs that I would have to do. And I remember Paul, which is the seller's name, sort of stepping back going, okay, and he has to go back to his wife and think about it. So another couple of days go by. We have another phone conversation. I come back with a number I would take is 1600. He wanted 19 or 18. And we finally yeah. settled on 17 because what I saw after looking at the property was a way that I could raise rents roughly $400 inside the first four or five months, likely causing no vacancies because they're under market. So I could support 1700 and hold it long-term, which is my intention with, with most of my properties is to hold long-term and enjoy the positive cash flow. Mm-hmm. With the management comment, when uh-huh. you were talking to Paul, did he ever say, well, fine, I'll just find someone who will buy it who self-manages. That way we won't have to have this variable. No, he never said that, but I certainly got the impression that he had talked to other buyers. And what became very clear, again, this is my opinion, I never bothered yes. asking him, was that he was getting frustrated with the kind of off-the-cuff comments being made by other buyers. They weren't fact-based. I was speaking from a landlord's perspective. You know what? I own property like next door, right? Down the street anyway. So I know about the area. I can tell you the cross streets. And he knew that I was going to be in it long-term because you got to remember his goal wasn't to get the maximum price, obviously. His goal was to get $1,700 a month for at least 10 years. That's what he wanted. And it was via listening for that. I'm sure he had people offering to pay more, but they weren't listening to what he wanted. He wanted to avoid that IRS hit. And he was comfortable with what I was doing and understanding and and willing to work with me. Did he initially come out and say that? Or did you have to ask questions to get to that point? Sellers are, I don't know if you want to call them liars, but sellers are always hiding some cards. So it's just conversations and being open. I think real estate's a people business. And the more you listen and ask him, questions and, and just be upfront with people, the more you'll hear and understand. So it was multiple conversation. I probably spoke with him half a dozen times before we actually met at the property. And we probably spoke a dozen times before we met back at escrow and finally signed something and put it to bed. When you speak to him half a dozen times before you meet at the property, 
what are you talking about each of those six? I mean, obviously you're not going to remember each of the six conversations, but just why six times? Well, first couple were more about him selling me because I'm in the situation where I don't have to buy anything, right? So it's a nice kind of place to be. So it was him selling me the property. Hey, it's a three bedroom, one bath and two stories. We've done all these great remodels and this, that, and the other thing, you know, leases are up to date and all of that. The next couple of conversations about me being more inquisitive because I'm not even thinking about numbers until I sort of meet some certain threshold. And then it was about getting to know each other. That's kind of how they broke down. Him, him selling me, me selling him, and then let's getting to know each other. Because essentially we've signed up for at least a 10-year relationship, yep. right? So he emails me every month on the first to confirm he's got a check. Right? I send him a, <laughs> so I don't know if we'll technically be friends. We'll certainly know each other and probably send each other Christmas cards because again, right? 1,700 times 12 is what it's, you know, it's 20 grand a year, right? So we're going to know each other quite a while. Was the purchase price initially 232? No, we actually backed into the purchase price based on payment and interest rate. The purchase price wasn't the most interesting thing to him, hence we got a lower number. It was, I want $1,700 a month for at least 10 years, and I want to have a penalty in place that doesn't prohibit because life happens, but certainly discourages me from selling it and taking an artificial gain. Mm-hmm. And how did you back into that purchase price? Well, the purchase price, that's just a simple equation. If you know what your purchase price is, and you know what your interest rate is, you can do the math. It's just the reverse calculation into what the ultimate purchase price is. I basically told him, I can do a $1,700 a month payment. You pick the interest rate. You want 1%, you want 3%, you want 5%. Obviously, the higher the interest rate, the lower the price. So we just backed in the one and he wanted one that I think 1.9% is what ultimately did. What does that bloom payment equal out to in 15 years? Uh, I think it's roughly... 40% of the purchase. So it's probably, I don't remember, I don't have it in front okay. of me. It's probably 115 probably. Got it. It's just a guess, but that's probably pretty close. So taking a step back, based on your experience mm-hmm. as a real estate investor, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? The best real estate investor advice ever is never buy or create an alligator property. Now, we all have heard or read about negative cash flow, but I cannot tell you how many times I have heard someone, and maybe it's because I'm from California, Oh, appreciation's going to cover me and oh, all these other things. I lived through the crash. I saw people who were worth tens of millions of dollars go bankrupt. And it was all because they had negative cash flow properties in a market that changed on them suddenly. Never buy or create, which is the mistake I made. I created an alligator once via cash out refi ever because it limits your ability to hold it. I want to have conservative financing, unlimited hold time. I want to sell on my clock, not on some forced behavior. And I don't want to become a motivated seller. That is my number one thing. It may sound hokey, but it's absolutely the only way to stay in this business is to have properties that are conservatively financed and will cash flow regardless of what's going on. I lost a lot of money in net worth when the market turned, but actually my income statement went up because rents got more stable. I was uh, more occupied and, and the better quality of tenants. So Amen. Completely agree. I wrote something. Well, you saw my book, uh, <laughs> Three Immutable Laws of Real Estate Investing. And two of them are buy cash flow property uh, from day one. And the other is have conservative financing. And then I have a third, which is have adequate cash reserves. Bingo. If I had a comma or a semicolon <laughs> or whatever, I would have said that as well. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to have any life event. Because again, real estate's a people business. You don't want some outside force that you can't control to force you to become that motivated seller that lets something go at a discount or God forbid you lose it to foreclosure or short sale or whatever. So reserves, totally agree. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? 
I look forward to it. All right. Well, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Finally, there's a simple way to track rental performance. Stessa, our best ever sponsor, lets real estate investors track, manage, and communicate the performance of our real estate portfolios for free. Go to stessa.com forward slash best ever. You'll always know how your properties are performing with this dashboard. It's a beautiful looking dashboard. And it will help you save time with smarter income and expense tracking. You don't have to do any more data entry. Just upload the stuff directly from your phone. It tracks it in real time. Get organized for tax time with tax-ready financials so you can download them instantly. This thing was built by investors for real estate investors. It's been featured in all the publications you can think of. To get set up with your free account, just add your properties, link your accounts, and everything else updates in real time. Stessa.com forward slash best ever. S-T-E-S-S-A.com forward slash best ever to get started. The Target Market Insights podcast is just that, a show solely dedicated to help you learn about target markets through the people successfully shaping them. The show features professionals who work directly with the audience and market you want to connect with in real estate. Listen and subscribe today at targetmarketinsights.com. That's targetmarketinsights.com. All right, Michael, best ever book you've read recently? Principles from Ray Delano. Best ever deal you've done? The first one. Even though it had that horror story, it got me in the game and I never looked back. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction we haven't talked about? A mistake I've made? Oh, I didn't go to private money soon enough. Best ever way you like to give back? my YouTube channel, one rental at a time. I try to do daily videos, just giving everything away. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on? I would say visit my YouTube channel at one rental at a time. Please subscribe. That's a big deal. If you ever want to reach out to me personally, it's just mzuber at one rental at a time. And Zuber is Z-U-B as in boy, E-R, one rental at a time. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show talking about this last deal was fascinating. I'm glad we got to that one the fourplex owner financing the negotiating involved how you got to that point by asking the right questions listening then ultimately structuring it in a way that benefits both of you as well as your approach for the last 15 or so years when you first got going and now where you're at today i'm very impressive and grateful that you're on the show so thanks again for being on the show hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon All right, Joe. Thank you very much. Thanks for writing the book. The Target Market Insights podcast is just that, a show solely dedicated to help you learn about target markets through the people successfully shaping them. The show features professionals who work directly with the audience and market you want to connect with in real estate. Listen and subscribe today at TargetMarketInsights.com. That's TargetMarketInsights.com.